Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word. How can the church stay on mission? Any church, the global church, or our church? How can the church stay focused on its original mission? How can churches and Christians stay true to Jesus, our founder's original intentions for the church, the institution worldwide that he created and instituted? Have you ever noticed that... uh, some churches, and I'm, I'm going to make probably an unfair generalization just to make a point so you'll understand what I'm saying. Have you ever noticed that some churches um, are really more about talk uh, and, and less about action? Uh, they know their beliefs. Uh, they're excited about their beliefs. They make it clear to you what their beliefs are. But when you look at their lives, you don't really see impact. You don't see those beliefs impacting how they live and how they act and how they speak. Or maybe you see a clear set of beliefs, but you don't see impact in the community. You don't see those beliefs transforming anybody. Okay? Maybe another extreme would be this. Have you ever noticed that some churches, uh, Christian churches, are more about action, but really don't have anything uh, substantive to say? Uh, they're about transformation and action and impact in the world, In the community, they care very much about their behavior, what they do, and how they appear to others. But when you look beneath the behavior to the motivations and the worldview and the reasons for why they live the way they live, you don't see much substance. It's almost like you see a lot of change and community work, but you don't see any solid belief, any objective truth, uh, any reason to hope. Okay, Some churches are all about belief, but really you don't see any impact in the way they live and how they worship and how they impact, uh, how they relate to their community. Other churches are all about behavior and impact, but they really don't have much to say. Um, Their actions are hollow because um, they're not on any kind of foundation, not based on any type of worldview. How does a church stay balanced? How does a church believe in something but also reflect in its actions transformation that is affected by that belief. How do Christians stay balanced? How do you live a life as a Christian that is balanced so that what you say and how you live are respectable? Stay on focus, stay on mission as Jesus, the founder of the church, originally intended. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you're wondering what the Christian life is all about. Maybe people have asked you, and you're not even sure how to summarize it. What is the Christian life all about? Okay. Now, Jesus says something in these two verses in Mark chapter 1 that will help us understand the answer. There's something about Jesus when he talked about the gospel. There's something about the gospel that's going to help us as a church stay on mission. It will help you as a Christian stay on mission. 
or at least understand what Christianity is all about. And the Bible actually says, it teaches that the gospel, the good news, as we defined it last week, the gospel is God's power to help us in this issue, to help us keep that balance that Jesus originally intended. The gospel is God's power to do it. And what we're going to see in Jesus' words today is that the gospel is God's power for people who embrace it in faith and repentance. And there's three ideas I want to share with you as we talk about this. The idea that God brings news to us. And the idea that He demands a response to that news. And then finally, God brings us power for how we respond to it. So God brings us news. He expects a response to that news. And He provides power to respond to the news. The news that God brings to us is simply about his kingdom. The passage says to us that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now the New Testament authors, the apostles, would later develop a deeper understanding of the gospel, which meant good news. Okay? Eventually, the New Testament authors, decades later, would say that this good news was about three events. And I mentioned it last week, the incarnation, the resurrection, sorry, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. But at this point, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus gives us the good news in its, in its most essential form. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the first definition of what the gospel was. Okay. The way one author, the way one commentator of Mark's gospel puts it, I like a lot, and I'll share that with you. He said, God's hour had struck the time to which all the Old Testament had looked forward. God's reign upon earth was about to begin. That's what the kingdom of God was. What would it have meant for a Jew living 2,000 years ago to hear these words come out of Jesus' mouth. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The ancient Jews understood the kingdom of Rome. They understood what Caesar's kingdom was. They were under it. They were subjugated by it. The Jews would have understood what the kingdom of Greece was, what the kingdom of Persia was, what the kingdom of Babylon was. They had been subjected to these governments for, literally for hundreds of years. But they were waiting for God's reign. They were waiting for God's rule, for God's justice, for God's mercy, for God's law, for God's power and truth and transformation to come, break into the world, restore them, restore their society, and bring about righteousness. And their hope for all of this was bound up in the idea of their Messiah, who was going to come to bring God's reign into the world. That's what they were waiting for. Now, Jesus says that this kingdom was at hand, or some of your translations may say it's near. Now, in the Greek, it didn't mean the kingdom is temporally near, as in the kingdom is three minutes away. The kingdom is three hours away. The kingdom is three years from this point in time. 
It's a spatial idea. What Jesus is saying has more to do with spatial closeness, not chronological time. Jesus is really saying the kingdom of God is right under your nose. It doesn't make much sense to us when we read the passage. Because you may have noticed in verse 14, what does it say? After John had been put in prison. It doesn't look like God's kingdom is invading. John the Baptist, we see, is in prison. We don't know why here. Mark assumes his readers understand. We'll find out in Mark chapter 6 why John the Baptist was put in prison, uh, courtesy of Herod the Tetrarch. It also says, not only is John put in prison after the big event of Jesus' baptism and the spiritual revival that John was bringing, but as his cousin goes into prison, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, goes to Rome. Where does Jesus go? To Galilee, where he was from. So after this big moment of his baptism... And after his time of testing in the wilderness, instead of going right to Jerusalem to make a big appearance, he goes home. He goes to the back country. So it really doesn't look like much of a kingdom advance. If anything, it kind of looks like a kingdom retreat, like he's moving in the wrong direction. But Jesus, years later, would say to Pilate, a Roman governor who had a tremendous amount of authority, he would say, my kingdom is not of this world. And my kingdom is not from this world. So here's something we're going to discover in Mark's gospel. The kingdom of God doesn't work according to our own logic and our own expectations and assumptions. We're going to have to walk with John as he begins to unfold the mystery of what the kingdom of God is and how God brings his kingdom, his rule, his reign into the world and into our lives. Be be prepared to be challenged as you discover what the kingdom of God is all about. And for now, we simply have to understand that the kingdom of God is all about his rule, his reign coming into the world. And Jesus said that was the gospel. That initially was the good news. Okay? And that would remain Jesus' central theme throughout all his teaching. If you read the four gospels, the thing that Jesus talked about the most was the kingdom of God. Or in other places it says, the kingdom of heaven. So God brings news to us, and that news is good news. It's called the gospel. And the news is this. My kingdom has come. Now, something that bothers people in our society about Christianity is that it demands something from us. It expects something from us. In our society, people believe in God. They believe he's there. They, in general, believe that he's there for our good. Uh, But people really don't want the way they believe and the way they live their lives uh, to be impacted by religion, uh, or at least what we think uh, they should hear. There's a general sense of God is present, but he's far away, and he desires my good and my well-being and my comfort. That's kind of spiritual... Um, Americanism, right? I'll put it that way. Now, here's the problem with that. If, if you had gone out of your way to prepare something wonderful for people that you love, wouldn't you demand a response from them? It's fall, and I love apple pie. I love eating apple pie. I love baking apple pie. I like making apple pie for people that I love. And when I make an apple pie, 
and I put it out on the counter, I expect people to want to eat it. I would be sad if they didn't, okay? Why do we treat God any differently? God, for centuries, prepares for this moment where Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. Don't you think God desires a response to all that he has done, to all that he has said, to all that he has prepared for the people of Israel, for us? That's how the God of the Bible works. Okay, so the response to this news about the kingdom is really important in our lives. It's good news, and God requires a response. And here's the response. Faith and repentance. Jesus would say, not only what the gospel was, that God's kingdom was at hand, he would then say, repent and believe in the gospel. And right there you have the essence of Christianity faith and repentance. I want to talk about both of them and what they are. Let's go in order according to what Jesus said. Yeah, could you advance it, buddy? I don't know what the problem is. What is repentance? Simply put, repentance is an inward change of thinking that produces an outward change of living. In the Old Testament, there was a Hebrew word, and that word was shuv, and it simply meant to turn or to turn back. As a professor of mine used to say, repentance is when God gives you a shuv in the right direction. And that was simply the idea. The original idea of repentance in the Old Testament was you're moving on a path away from God and you turn around and start walking with God on that path. That's the idea of repentance. Now in the New Testament, there was a Greek word, and I normally don't talk about these words, but it's important today. The Greek word was metanoia, and it was, it was a compound word. It was two words in one, the word after and the word mind. And so in the New Testament authors, when they said repent, they meant a changed mind. This is literally what repentance is. It's a change in your thinking, okay? So we have the idea of turning around on the path you're on toward God, and what he desires, and you have the idea of a new way of thinking, a new mind. If you're familiar with Paul's writing in Romans chapter 12, remember he said, do not be, trans- do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay? And in a sense, repentance is an invitation from God to switch your allegiance. Right? We're born under the kingdom of this world, the Bible tells us. Repentance is an opportunity from God. It's an invitation from God to switch allegiance from the kingdom of this world, which by nature is against God and his truth and his ways, and becoming a member of the kingdom of God, okay? Faith, what is faith? So there you have repentance. Faith, and I'm using the word faith to be synonymous with belief today, okay? Faith is simply putting your greatest trust and hope in the gospel. This good news. Martin Luther said faith is being so confident in the gospel that you're willing to stake your life on it a thousand times. Richard Lovelace said faith is to receive God's word as truth and rest upon it in dependent trust. So faith, let's put it in terms of kingdoms, okay? Faith is is believing that you've committed treason 
That's first, faith is believing that you've committed treason because you're allied to the kingdom of this world. Faith is believing that you're against God in the natural way. It's also believing that God offers to make you his ally. It's, it's both. It's first believing that you're God's enemy and then trusting and embracing that he's offered you his friendship. He's offering to bring you into his kingdom. Okay? And the Bible shows us that there's an amazing gift waiting for those who respond to the gospel with both faith and repentance. And it's called sonship. Next slide, please. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to be quoting Romans a lot today. But the Apostle Paul talks about sonship for those who respond to God with faith and repentance. Some translations call it adoption. Okay? And the idea of sonship is this. You're no longer a cosmic orphan alienated from your creator. But you're a son. You're a daughter. You're more than that. You're an heir. You will inherit what belongs to God. Um, a guy named Jack Miller, um, who taught at Westminster Seminary, was really big on this idea of sonship. He said it was so important to his life and it was so important to ministry that he developed an entire ministry, an entire organization to just help people in missions and in ministry keep, m keep on mission, stay on tax, task according to the plan of Jesus simply by remembering that they were adopted sons and daughters of the king of the universe, that they had been made allies with God in his kingdom. So faith, and I'll keep it in these terms, faith really is believing that you're not an orphan anymore. Faith is believing that you're God's adopted, beloved child, and that nothing can ever change that. Repentance means learning to live like you're not an orphan. Faith is learning to live like a child of God. Repentance, I'm sorry, did I get that wrong? Faith is believing that you're a child. Repentance is acting like it. It's learning how to think and speak and prioritize and work and worship and love like you're a child and no longer an orphan. So the response that God requires of the gospel is faith and repentance. And you may remember Jim McKee speaking to us over a month ago, and he said that was the Christian life. The Christian walk is faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. And that's how, by God's grace, we stay close to Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Next slide, please. What is difficult about Jesus' call to both faith and repentance? What do you think? I'm not asking you what's difficult about faith or what's difficult about repentance. I'm asking you, what is difficult and challenging about Jesus' call to both of them? What do you think? Which comes first? Is that an answer or a question? Yes. Okay, good point. 
an answer slash question, well, which comes first? Maybe there's a difficulty right there. Maybe it seems unclear. What else? What's difficult? Yeah. Maybe self-condemnation, yeah. uh, the idea that guilt, guilt. okay, self-condemnation, guilt, we, we know that God has forgiven us, but we don't feel like we're sons and daughters. Like we don't act like heirs because, yeah. of because of that. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Uh, it requires your mind and your heart. Do you mean by mind and heart, intellect and yeah. affections, intellect and emotion? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I understand what you mean. It's meaning it's got to get beyond your thinking and into what drives you and motivates you in your life. Good. In the Bible, mind and heart are really, they, they're the same thing. They're the inner self. But when we say mind and heart, we typically mean um, intellect and emotions or intellect and affections. Is that kind of how you meant it? Which is just as legitimate. How do you get something that's just cerebral into something that is real and practical, motivating you. Good. Yeah, it's got to get beyond the mind. Yeah, Jed. So it's easy to believe something in principle. It's much more difficult to act it out. Okay. How often are Christians accused of being hypocrites? Because we live in a way that contradicts what we say, we believe. Good point. Yeah, Rachel. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. You've, she said you feel as though at some point you should stop having to repent. When am I ever going to be perfect? Or when am I ever going to stop doing that or stop saying that? And sometimes I think back to Jack's comment, that's why some people get so discouraged and condemn themselves is because they, they think, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm still not perfect. It's been 20 years follow with Jesus and I'm, I'm, still, I'm still a disaster. I'm still a creep. I, an exercise in futility. Wow. Wow. So there's this tension then of being told as a Christian that you are a child of God and an heir of God. There's a tension between knowing that and hearing that and reading that, but then believing it when you see what's really going on in your messed up mind and your thoughts and your desires and your behavior and your record, your reputation. Okay? Good thoughts, everybody. When, um, when churches or Christians, individual Christians, neglect either of these things, either faith or repentance, just by neglecting one of the two, we go way off mission. By forgetting or neglecting or ignoring one of the two, 
we will forget our identity. And when we forget our identity, we're going to forget what our purpose is. And we're going to confuse our mission. And we're going to confuse the world. And people aren't going to understand who Jesus is, what his news was all about, and what his intentions for the earth and for humanity were. And I want to suggest that as we walk the path of Christianity, as we walk the Christian life, there are two cliffs on either side of us. You can fall off of one of these two cliffs, just a gradual, slippery, slippery slope. Uh, one cliff is cultural irrelevance, and the other cliff is cultural assimilation. Christians either become irrelevant or we assimilate and become just like the rest of the world. I want to just talk about cliff number one, this idea of becoming culturally irrelevant. This happens when churches and Christians simply emphasize faith to a fault because they neglect repentance. They believe, but, like, but contrary to what Paul says, they're not interested in changing the way they think. They're not interested in transformation. They're not interested in turning around and actually moving in a new direction in their lives. They may have correct doctrine, okay, but they have little transformation. You don't see a change. You don't see a change in them. You didn't see a change in the people around them. Didn't the Apostle James in his letter say, oh, you believe in God? Big deal. So do the demons. Show me that you have faith by how you live your life. Let's talk about cliff number two, which is cultural assimilation. This is when churches or Christians or ministries emphasize repentance. It's a false repentance, but they emphasize repentance to a fault because they neglect the importance of faith. They're all about community action. They're all about community transformation, helping one another, helping your neighbor, building a new society behaving well, helping others behave well, doing great things. But it's not based on belief. It's not based on what Jesus talked about. It's not based on anything that's in the church's founding document, which was the Bible. And in this situation, you see transformation. You see new behavior. You see people striving to do good and striving to change the world, striving to change their community, but they compromise truth in order to do that. There's nothing beneath their actions that gives any hope or understanding or clarity to people in this world who have serious questions like the ones you just raised. It was God who said to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel, you know, people judge by appearances, but I see the heart. So it doesn't matter how good your works and actions and behavior may look, God knows what's going on inside. God's just as much more concern with why you do what you do, the motivations for what you do what you do, than the good behavior itself. So if we miss either of these things, if we miss faith or if we miss repentance and we don't walk this path understanding the importance of both of them, we as a church, on the one hand, could become completely irrelevant to the people around us who see no transformation based on what we actually say we believe and how we speak, or we'll fall off the other side of the path, off another cliff, which is we just become like the rest of the world, and it doesn't look like we're any different because we forget truth. We forget what Jesus says. And I would suggest that those, those are two common things that happen 
when we get off mission because we neglect the importance of faith or we neglect the importance of repentance. And so what happens is we either become like the world or we become irrelevant and the gospel gets clouded. The gospel becomes hidden. It becomes distorted. And as people look at us and people look at the church, they don't really see Jesus. They don't hear or see the good news. They see something else. They see something that we've created. Maybe they simply see our good doctrine and our exemplary, astute belief system. But that's all they see. They don't see the gospel itself. They see us becoming self-sufficient, proud of our belief system. Or they see our good behavior, they see our good works, but they don't see the gospel. They just see us doing good things and acting right. But they don't see the gospel. They don't see transformation based on truth. They just see transformation based on transformation for itself. And so what happens is the world doesn't get to see the true mission of the church. They don't get to hear the good news of the gospel because we are relying on ourselves, whether it's our beliefs alone or whether it's our behavior alone, but we are becoming self-sufficient, which is a bad thing according to the Bible. Orphans are self-sufficient because they have to be. Or if you're raised in a dangerous home, you know you have to rely on yourself. But a son, a daughter, knows that they don't have to rely on themselves. They know they can trust in their parent, right? So self-sufficiency for the Christian is a bad thing because beloved adopted heirs know that they have to rely on their spiritual father, okay? And so we can be discouraged as we continue to walk the Christian life wondering, when are we ever gonna become perfect. We can get discouraged because we see that God presents good news to us and we fail in our response to it. We can't walk this line of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance, we fail again and again and again. And we discover that even if we've been following Christ for 30 years, we still need to hear and understand the good news. And so here's the interesting thing about the gospel. God's solution to our failure to respond to it is embedded in the gospel itself. The solution to our failed response, to our weak response, is found within the gospel. And here's what it is. Next slide, please. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, makes an argument for why the gospel is the best thing that ever happened to humanity. And in the beginning, he says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's not just good news, it's power for those who receive it. For in it, Paul said, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The power of the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed to us. Now, you may say, well, big deal. Yeah, I know God's righteous. I'm not. That's the problem. That's why I'm so frustrated and discouraged. So Paul continues in his argument. And in Romans chapter 3, next slide, please. In Romans 3, Paul says, 
Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Let me stop there for a minute. What he means is God's righteousness has been manifested apart from our desire to believe perfectly and our desire to behave perfectly. That's what the Bible calls the law, which we always fail to do completely. Paul said the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, And he would go on to say in Romans chapter 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he goes on to say that we have no right to boast because the gospel is not about our righteousness to keep God's law, but about God's righteousness. Now, if you're still confused, you probably should be because I'm still not encouraged to simply know that God is righteous and I am not. Okay, here's why I'm bringing up Romans. Because sons and daughters know they can't rely on their own righteousness. They have to rely on their father's righteousness. They have to rely on God's perfect record. And that's where Jesus comes in. When Jesus hung on the cross, according to the Bible, your bad record was given to him. And through faith in him, through trusting him, his good record, perfect record, is given to you. That's the righteousness Paul's talking about. The gospel reveals not just that God is righteous, but that he gives his righteousness to you who will, in faith, receive it and believe that his kingdom is here. And that that makes a big difference. That makes the difference. So, uh, next slide, please. It was John Calvin who said, there's no absurdity in saying that to believe the gospel is the same thing as to embrace a free righteousness. So when we believe, we are saying that as a child, my righteousness is the righteousness that Jesus provides to me. And as I continue to screw up and fail in my life and realize that I need to repent again, I'm remembering that it's not my righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. And the more I realize that it's Jesus' righteousness, the more I will stop condemning myself every time I sin and every time I mess up. Repentance is Remembering I have a new identity and living like I have a new identity. I want to use an illustration. Next slide, please. From the movie Moonstruck. I will probably bring this illustration up again because it's good for other conversations. The movie Moonstruck takes place in Brooklyn, New York. And there's this um, older couple, retirement age couple, Cosmo and Rose. They're, They're Italians in New York. And Cosmo is a wealthy, successful plumber. Rose is his wife. Cosmo, for reasons I won't get get into right now, Cosmo is cheating on Rose. Cosmo's being unfaithful for his own issues, for his own reasons. Rose knows it. She knows that Cosmo's cheating on her, and she's so discouraged, and she's so sad, and she's so frustrated. She hasn't told him she knows yet. Cosmo's out one night, Rose is home alone. She decides to go out to dinner by herself. It's really sad. It's pathetic as you watch this. Rose goes to an Italian restaurant and has dinner alone. 
And while she's having dinner alone, she strikes up a conversation with Perry, who is now also having dinner alone because his date left him in the middle of dinner at the next table. He's a college professor. He dates these young girls who get angry at him and walk out of his life. And he keeps doing this again and again. He's a lonely, aging college professor. They strike up a friendship sitting at the tables together alone and decide to have dinner together. And they're talking and they're talking. And then Perry offers Rose to walk her home. So he walks her home, but you can imagine Perry is interested in romance. And they get to the doorstep of Rose's house, and, you know, Perry's doing this pathetic, you know, male type of, aren't you going to let me into the house thing. And Rose goes, no, I can't let you in. And Perry goes, oh, is someone home? And Rose says, I don't think anybody's home. I think the house is empty. I can't let you in because I'm married, because I know who I am. And I think that's profound. She made a decision based on her identity, not on how she felt. She felt terrible. She was lonely. She was being cheated on. She made a decision based on who she was. Okay? Roger Ebert, in his review of this movie, said, we know what she means. She has a home and a husband and a family, and an identity, and isn't needy the way he is. So faith, friends, is believing Jesus when he tells you, you have a new home, you have a new identity, and that's never going to change. Repentance is living like you have a new home and a new identity. When we fail and when we condemn ourselves, we are forgetting that we're a child. We're acting like a servant. We're acting like a hired hand. We're acting like an orphan. And that's why we need to believe the gospel every day. Not for saving faith, for continuing faith. And so repentance is no longer simply, oh, I'm sorry for what I did. I'm such a mess. Repentance is when we fail. Remembering who we are. Remembering what Jesus has done for us. Next slide, please. Steve Childers wrote once, the gospel is not just a gate I must pass through one time, but a path I should walk each day of my life. He's not saying that I have to keep asking God for salvation every day of my life. That's not what he's saying. But the truth of the gospel the truth that God's kingdom is here and that it is found in the man Jesus, okay, who is our righteousness. That's something we have to remember and rejoice in every day. And repentance has to do with remembering who we are. Next slide, please. So the gospel is God's power for you when you embrace him in faith and repentance. God's news is that his kingdom is here and it's realized in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, who literally became an orphan so that you wouldn't have to remain one. When he hung on the cross, Jesus said, God, 
Why have you forsaken me? And so his willingness to become a cosmic orphan at that moment was so that you wouldn't have to remain one. And faith is seeing that Jesus did that for you and has become your righteousness. And repentance is your response to it. Christianity is more than just believing. And, and, it's, and it's, about more, it's, it's about doing more than just believing. It's about faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Belief and transformation. Both of them by God's grace. And the power to do this, the power to walk this two-step life, faith and repentance, is found in Christ alone. And it's based upon his righteousness, not yours. So are you a child? You are free to act like one. Do you want to be a child? We should talk. I'll be here after the service. Let's just talk. We'll talk about what it means to become a child for the first time. If you're not sure you are, Let's talk. Let's pray. Father, we ask. We ask for faith to believe that we are no longer orphans. And we ask for your power to repent, to speak and think and live as children, as sons and daughters and heirs. I pray that as Deep Run Church matures, and grows. Our community of Westminster and Carroll County, our friends, our neighbors and co-workers would see a group of people, a church and individual people who not only believe you but act as people who have been transformed into sonship by a God who's adopted us and loves us. Father, help us to stay on mission. Help us to remember these words that Jesus said are not they're not just fire insurance for 20 years ago. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, they're just as relevant to us today as we continue to walk with you. So help us to learn, Father, this balance in Christ alone. Amen.